better, right? It feels better, and it looks better, and it makes you look better. Well, you know, that feeling of imprisonment is um, a series called The Story. The story is not a substitute for the Bible. It is not. Uh, it, it is the Bible, but it takes some out. It's like a Reader's Digest version of the Bible. It helps us read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, and read it as a story, as a narrative. And where we are, if you've been with us through, um, through the story, congratulations, you've made it through Genesis. Right? Good job. And so we've read about the creation. We talked about that the first week. The next week we talked about Abraham, who's defined by faith. And last week, we talked about the up and downs of life that we saw in Joseph. Well, we get to the end of Joseph's life. And you remember where Joseph's life ended? He was the second in power of all of Egypt. He was able to bring his people, his family, Israel, out of a land that was destined to, or for famine and death into just north of Egypt, so where they could live and prosper. Well, here's where we catch up in Exodus chapter 1. Verses 6 through 3. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone will bring you a Bible. We want that to be your Bible. We want you to take it home, study it, read it, highlight in it, do dances with it, whatever you got to do with it. Um, if you've got your copy of the story, we're going to be on page 43. Or if you've got a Bible just like mine, we're in Exodus uh, chapter 1. You can follow along with us on the Restore Church app. You can follow along with us uh, on the Version Bible app. If you just search Restore Church, you'll see us there. Um, but if you would rather, you can follow along with us on the screens. Actually, I'm going to follow along with us on the screens also. So here we are. We're at the beginning of Exodus. The book of Exodus is exactly that. It tells the story of, of, uh, Israel's, of Israel, God's people, making a way out of Egypt. And we'll get there in just a second. But in, ver- in chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 7, it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died. But Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so this population up north, all of God's people start to be so numerous that you couldn't even count them. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham. You have so many children that you can't even count them, similar to the numbers of stars in the sky. What we keep reading is that then another guy becomes king in, uh, in Egypt. And this king didn't have, uh, it said that he despised Jacob. He didn't like Jacob. And so what he realizes is, oh my goodness, there are a lot of them. They're like rabbits. We've got to control this. And so what he decides that he's going to do is enslave this nation to be, uh, he's going to enslave all of Israel's people, and they will be the workforce for the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And so he, he assigns slave masters and slave drivers, and they bring all of the Israelites down into Egypt to do their work. Man, far cry from being God's people, right? Um, maybe... That's how you view your sin and inability to get away from it is, God, why would you let me face this? God, why would you let me be in this situation? God, I thought I was out of that, and I'm not. What happened? Where are you? Well, I hope you find comfort in the, uh, in the end of chapter 2. Um, no, not quite, right? Let's see. Hmm. No, not yet. Okay, go back. So (laughs) uh, here's what happens. We get a glimpse of Moses. 
uh, we get Moses is born into this. This guy, this Pharaoh king, he he says, man, not only do we need to control the population by bringing them in to be our prisoners or our slaves, but also we need to kill all of the boys that are now born. Right? Uh, sound a little bit like King Herod when Jesus, the time that Jesus was born. And so he says, we're going to kill all of the baby boys, all of the boys that are born. You need to throw into the Nile. But all the girls will let them live. Man, this is a real moment in history. And I want you to grasp just how heinous this act is. How violent and disgusting it is. And, man, we've, we've come a long way since Genesis 3, haven't we? When sin entered the world and all we had to worry about was Cain and Abel. And now we got this guy who's worried about protecting his, right, protected mine. Well, in the middle of that, uh, a character in the story uh, is born. His name is Moses, and he's born to Jochebed. So if you're looking for a name for your unborn baby girl, Jochebed would be a good one. (laughs) My grandfather wanted my sister to be named Jochebed, and I so wish that would have happened. (laughs) (laughs) So he's born, uh, Jochebed being a godly mother, hides Moses, but when he gets so big that he, she can't hide him anymore, she creates a basket big enough for him to float down the Nile. Now, in those three months, I'd imagine that she kind of formulated a plan, and, uh, and, and then she, like, scoped out when uh, Pharaoh's daughter would come down to the end of the Nile. So she puts Moses into the basket. He, uh, he floats down and uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, and, and then, you know, you guys might have experienced this. She comes in with the baby to dad and says, with those big brown Egyptian eyes, and says, Daddy, can we keep him, please? And he's probably like you and says, yeah, we can keep him if you take care of him. And she's like, okay, I'll do it, not knowing what the responsibility of a newborn is and realizing her body's not in the season of, of giving birth, and so she needs to find uh, a, a mother who is. She needs to find someone who can nurse him, who can take care of him. And who does she find but Jochebed, Moses' mom. It's amazing how God, who the story, y'all, is all about God. He's the main character, not us. But there is this upper story of God, right, carrying it out from Genesis to Revelation. But then there's also this lower story that's happening. And we get to watch God orchestrate this and allow Jochebed to be able to take care of Moses for the first two years of his life. Now, let me ask you about this question. Or let me ask you this question. What do you think that Jochebed is teaching him while she's feeding him or while she's taking care of him and changing his diapers? I imagine she's singing songs about the Yahweh God. I imagine she tells him, you are a child of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are a a child of Israel. This is where you've come from. Well, time passes, and Moses eventually is raised in the greatest education system, in the most powerful military system. He gets to watch Pharaoh lead millions of people, and this will come into play next week when we talk about uh, them being in the wilderness. Moses, knowing that he's a Hebrew person, uh, that he's one of the Hebrew uh, people, he comes out one day, and he sees an an Egyptian slave master mistreating a Hebrew slave. And so he gets angry, and uh, and he kills him. Now, pride gets the best of Moses because he's like, I'll just bury him in the hills and no one will ever find out. And then the next day, he comes out, and what happens? He he sees another Egyptian slave driver mishandling one of the slaves, and he uh, he berates him. And then what do they say to him? Are you going to kill us too? 
Your sin will always find you out. And Moses uh, realizes his pride cannot, uh, cannot sustain, so he runs. He runs away from his pain. He runs away from his sin. He runs away from his consequences. And some of you are getting a little squirrely in your chair because you know what it feels like. Maybe you're running away from some today. You're running away from pain, misery, sin, family. Maybe you're running away from what God's calling you to do. Maybe he's asking you to give your life to him, and you've been avoiding that. Maybe he's calling you into ministry, and you've been uh, so focused in your career. I don't know. But some of you know what it's like to run away. It's like slavery in and of itself, isn't it? It's like an imprisonment in and of itself. Well, here's where we get our comfort at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Sorry, I got a little ahead of myself because I really want to get to the end because I'm excited about it. Hope you're excited about it too. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went out to God. So maybe you feel like you're running or maybe you feel like you're in this slavery uh, of sin. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25 is where it's at. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. you got to hear this. Uh, This seems like it's a theme that keeps coming up in our sermons, doesn't it? God hasn't stopped watching you. God sees. I mean, these Hebrew people, these Israelites, they're like enslaved. and, And I would imagine they're saying, God, where are you? I thought you were our God and we were your people. Do you remember that? Do you remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where are you? What's happening? Because life isn't really panning out the way that I thought it should. And he hasn't really demonstrated his power in your life, but he's demonstrating it in other people's lives. And you're like, you know, what in the world is going on, God? Just take a little bit of comfort. Verse I saw this week, it says, be still and know that I'm God. And just know that he sees you. He hasn't given up on you. Well, Moses is still on his journey of running away. And uh, he sees this woman in distress being mistreated. And he saves her. Little does he know it's going to be his wife, Zipporah. Well, her dad, Jethro, brings him into his home. And he's going to work as a shepherd. Y'all, check this out. Um, uh, <clears throat> We saw last week Joseph. He was a shepherd, then a slave, then he became second in charge of all of Egypt. Do you remember that? Well, we just saw Moses go from second in charge of all of Egypt to a shepherd. It's amazing how God's plan works out and how, as we read, we can see, man, God, circumstances change, but God does not. One day he's out with his sheep and he sees a burning bush. This blows my mind. Like for a while when I was a kid, I was like, this story gets old. But imagine that you're driving a Newburn today uh, to go shopping. We got everything Newburn has. You know, that's, that's old news. But if you were to go up there for whatever, and uh, maybe a Target with a grocery store, I don't know. But you're headed up there, and then on the right you see a tree that's on fire. There's no smoke. Like the tree's fully intact, there are no ashes. You would stop to see what's happening, wouldn't you? Well, Moses does that. And I want you to see what God does when Moses stops to check out this bush. Uh, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now check this out, watch this. I want you to see how this works out. And Moses says, here I am. Do you guys remember what uh, God, what um, Abraham said when God said to Abraham, 
hey, Abraham, I want you to go up to the mountain and sacrifice your son. Remember what he says? Here I am. If God says something to you, just don't say, here I am, okay? You'll be fine. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But check this out. Watch, watch what happened. Moses says, here I am. And then verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is not what this sermon's about. But look, if you want to amplify your prayer life, wait this afternoon or this evening. Get all by yourself. Take a deep breath and then remove your shoes. And then take, I, I don't know, kneel. Do something and then pray. Because what you've done, now taking off your shoes is not an act in and of itself holy, but what you've done is said, I'm about to enter into a moment with this creator God, this powerful God who created everything just by speaking it. Verse 6, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing of milk and honey. It's also the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezites, Hivites, Jebusites, and all the other parasites. That was funny. I didn't mean that. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh um, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now this is like, whoa. (laughs) This is too much. The story has just taken this big twist because Didn't you read the beginning part of Exodus, God? Don't you remember the part that I'm running away from? My face is still in a post office there. Like, I'm a fugitive, and I'm on the run. And this is what he says. Look look right here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Do you know what I hear in that story? Man, don't you know what's in my past, God? Who am I that you would ask me? We'll find out in later, uh, later verses that, that um, Moses has a s- 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 stutter. And so what he says is, you know me, God. You know me in and out. You know I have a past. You know I have sin. You know that I'm a murderer on the run. You know that my physical abilities, I'm incapable. I'm getting old. God, who am I that you're asking me? To go into the most powerful man in the world and ask him to let his workforce go. The reason they are what they are is because of my people are enslaved. Who am I? Who am I? And then later, this, and then he says, who should I tell him sent me? And here's what God says. Look in verse 14. And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're going to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Man. I took a moment this uh, last night. I was uh, writing my sermon on a whiteboard just to see if I could use it again. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was writing my sermon on the whiteboard, and, and I had to pause at this moment. Um, because it really made me remember that the story is about God. And as I, as I wrote these words, as I wrote this, uh, M- Moses says, here I am. And then he tells God what he's not. 
who am I that I should go do this? And then God says, but I am. This phrase, I am. You know, there's no past tense to it. There's no future tense to it. But it just means I am. I am now, and I am now, and I am now. I was, and I will be, but right now, I am. And some of you need to hear this. It's not about who you are. As a matter of fact, most of the gospel is about the opposite. It's about who you're not. What you need to hear is it's about who God is and who he will always be. Look, your story is not about your sin. Although it does play a part in it and we need to repent to it and come back to God, you are not defined by your sin. And you need to stop looking in the, in yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and considering yourself some kind of failure because of the mistakes you've made. Look, when you give your life to Jesus, and you have to give your life to Jesus in order to claim this, but once you give your life to Jesus, you are not defined by your sin anymore. You're defined by a child of God. A child who doesn't live by the prison of slay or the, the prison of sin anymore but instead in freedom, and we'll get to that in just a second. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, uh, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Check this last part out. For when I am weak, it's then I'm strong. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel's not about you. It's about God. You're weak? Yeah, me too. You should have seen me trying to get stuff out of this truck earlier. <laughs> but it's, the gospel is about God about his power being displayed. And we see that in the next few verses of Exodus. We see that Moses goes in. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let these people go. You're crazy. And then we see God's power displayed through, uh, through what we call the plagues. Real quickly, first plague is water to blood. Hey, when you read through the Gospels in John, what's the first miracle that Jesus does? He turns water to wine. I don't know what that means, but it's cool that the first plague was this. And then Jesus turns water into wine, blood, water to blood, water to wine. Then there's frogs and gnats and flies and the livestock die. Man, this is getting pretty bad. Then, then both animals and people have boils all over them. Then deathly hell, hail, <laughs> might have been hell too, but deathly hail, locust, and then darkness. Uh, and just as it seems like it couldn't get any worse, right, Moses comes back in and, and he's like, and God says, I'm not done. I've got one more play. I've got one more left. And I need you to go in and tell Pharaoh what it is. So he walks in and he tells Pharaoh, here's the 10th plague. The 10th plague is that there will be a shadow of death or an angel of death that will come in over Egypt. We'll call every firstborn son who is not in a home marked with the blood of of a lamb. So what he tells Israel is, go kill a lamb, an unblemished, perfect lamb without defect, and I want you to, um, 
I want you to put that blood over the doorframe of your home. And as this angel of death comes, he will recognize the blood and pass over, pass over that home. Um, here, we'll read it. Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. It says, the animals you choose must be a year old, males without defect. You got that? A male without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Uh, verse 8. That same night, you are to eat the meat roasted over a fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. That's weird. Verse 11. This is how you eat it. Eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Check this out. Get ready because something's happening. Like, don't be sitting back in your lazy boy, right? I want you to eat this meal with expectation that something is about to happen. And he says, it's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. When I strike Egypt, man, this is uncomfortable for me. Um, <clears throat> it is, this story makes me sad. As I read it, it's like, uh, and you know, I, I think it makes God sad too. But you got to understand that the people of Egypt had every chance that the people of Israel did. As a matter of fact, a lot of theologians think that some of the Egyptians joined the nation of Israel as outsiders when they saw the power of God demonstrated. A lot of, um, a, a lot of commentators or theologians believe that in a second when we read about the Israelites leaving Egypt, that a lot of Egyptians went with them. But I want you to notice something. What is it that's going to save the people of Egypt? What is it that they're going to put over the door frames of their homes that's going to allow this angel of death to pass over? It's the blood of a lamb. And the book of John starts off with God, Jesus being demonstrated as God. And the author writes down that he was called the word. But the first time someone speaks a name of Jesus in the book of John, do you know what he's called? It's right here in John chapter 1, verse 29, spoken by John the Baptist. He says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very first thing that someone speaks about Jesus in the book, in the gospel of John, he calls him the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Listen, the most central thing to our Christian faith is the death of a perfect Jesus, his three-day burial, and then the resurrection. And for Jesus to be called the Lamb of God, not only does the blood save the people of Israel, but the Lamb of God, the blood, covers us and saves us from eternal death. It's the blood that saves us comes from the Lamb of God, Jesus. So what? 
what's all this matter to us? I mean, this is not Easter, so why are we talking about, you know, the blood and being weird and all of those things? Well, I, I want you to hear three real quick things, and we'll wrap up like this. God saw the Israelites in their misery. Remember that? God saw what was happening. God sees you. If you feel like today that sin has got you, we all do. I mean, don't, don't feel like that you're the only one in here. We've all gone through moments and maybe are going through right now moments where sin has just got us gripped. God sees you. And then God saved the Israelites. And God gives us the same opportunity to be saved from our sin. And when he talks about, so we use this word save, like to get saved, like it's a one-time event, like to get saved, like it's something to be accomplished by us. But I want, I want you to take a second to, to process what it means to follow Jesus as opposed to being a slave to your sin. Like you are saved from the consequences of your sin. You're saved from the shame of your sin, from the guilt of your sin, from the power of your sin. All of that is gone because now you get to live a life free and, and pursuing Jesus. And then God sustained the Israelites. He leads them out of Egypt. They, um, they run to the banks of the Red Sea, and they're like, dude, I don't know if you read the chapter this week, but they say to Moses, Moses, you brought us all the way out here so we could die. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? And then God demonstrates his power again. He says, Moses, put your staff in the water, and it splits, and they walk through on dry land. And as the, as the Egyptians pursue them, they're washed up. Uh, and he sustains them. He leads them by uh, a cloud during the day and fire at night. He does the same for you and me. He sees us, he saves us, and he sustains us. And um, I, I, I want to prove it to you. Remember Paul at the beginning? He says, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this life of sin and death. And the very next, I kind of like misled you a little bit because in the very next verse, Paul answers it. In Romans chapter 7, verse 25, Paul says this, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's, here's the so what. You got to be free. Like you need to just take a moment and say, I'm tired of these things. I'm tired of these chains. And if you've never taken a moment to say, Jesus, I want you. I want to take you into my life. I want to be free from this crap. Then you got to do it. Like you cannot be saved from your sin apart from Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the only way. He's the truth and the life. And so if you want to be free, you can. But it's not through these other things we're pursuing in our life. It's not through your self-image. It's not through your self-worth. It's not through alcohol and drugs. It's not through sexual relations. It's not through any of that. If you want freedom, it's got to come through Jesus. And as Christians, we forget that a lot because it just, it's old news. And so here's the second thing. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So in my Bible, which this isn't my study Bible, but 
um, the, the Bible I study with, uh, it says, it's like Romans chapter 7. It ends, and then in my Bible, it, it literally turns a page to Romans 8. So it's like, who can save me? Well, it's Jesus. And then we flip, and this is where God sustains us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now, check this out, no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. But you and I, we're going to try to wrap this up real quick with a little Taylor Swizzy, T-Swizzle, Taylor Swift. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you guys know, what I, w- I want you to sing along with me um, to this Taylor. We, some of us have this Taylor Swift theology um, where it's, uh, all right, you ready? I got perfect pitch, so don't ruin this if you're going to join. Um, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. We are never, ever, ever getting back together in my friends and your friends. And you guys know what song I'm talking about? I know. Just, you, you can, uh, all, all royalties go back to the church, I promise. <laughs> Look, I want you to hear something. You got to be free. And you got to live like you're free. Here's, Taylor Swift wrote that song about somebody, Right? Does she not? Rumors go on about who it is, who it is. It doesn't matter who it is because here's the thing. Taylor Swift wrote that song about somebody, and every night on tour, she's still singing about him. Like she has to sing that song and think about him. And every time it's played on the radio and she hears it or or whatever, uh, she's reminded of him. As long as she still sings that song, she will not. She's like back together with him. Even though she's not with, you know what I'm saying? Even though she's not with him, she's thinking about him. He's right there. She's singing about him. Do we do that with our sin? Don't we? It's like, I, I, I want to get away from it, but I, I'm still, I'm, I'm still kind of flirting with it, you know? I'm still kind of singing, singing about you. Look, the Holy Spirit has allowed you to be free from the law of sin and death. You just have to choose to allow the Holy Spirit to do it. And again, you cannot have the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus. And if you want the Holy Spirit to help you be free from this imprisonment, you need Jesus to do it. I want to end this with, with just this. Your slavery and your sin does not define who you are. But when you give your life to Jesus, being a child of God is what defines you. You are a child of God set free from sin. Amen. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his example, but God, we, um, we thank you for his sacrifice. That sets us free. God, that he is the that he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world something we couldn't do on our own God I'm thankful that the gospel is not about me or about my brokenness or about my fallenness or about my sin but God 
I'm thankful that it's about you and who you are. God, I, I want to live apart from my sin. I want to live a freed life. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help us to fight back against this, this law of sin. It has no fight. You are stronger. Um, God, help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.